Let's turn in the scriptures to John 11. We have now come to, as it were, one of the peaks in the mountain range of the gospel according to John. John 11 is where John records the seventh miracle that Jesus works, or the seventh sign. It's John's term for miracles. And the seventh miracle is the resurrection of Lazarus after he's been dead four days. There are seven signs that make up the first half of the gospel according to John. And he's already recounted how Jesus turned water into wine. He's recounted how he healed a man's dying son the very moment he said. Third, Jesus took an invalid of 38 years, made him walk. Then, Jesus walks on water in the Sea of Galilee. Right before, he feeds a crowd of 5,000 adults with a little boy's lunch. And then in chapter 9, one we've studied most recently is Jesus gave sight to a blind man who had been blind since birth by spitting on the ground and mixing the mud and putting it on his eyes. Jesus is showing he's the life giver, the creator. Today, we've come to the seventh, really, of all of these, I think the most magnificent one yet. These are called signs, I review from what we've studied in weeks past, because they're signifying something about Jesus. They're like billboards pointing to who he is. So what happens to Lazarus is like a sign that says, look at Jesus. Don't miss Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. It's a sign, a signifier, a billboard to Jesus. And that's the point of the entire gospel according to John that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Word made flesh. God become man. He is the Creator, the life giver. He is the one who can forgive sin, can cleanse sinners from their guilt, can reconcile them to God, can give them eternal life, can raise them from the dead. He can rid the whole universe of the curse. Fix your eyes on Jesus. All of these signs are pointing to him. That's John's entire point through the gospel. So he's doing it again here in chapter 11. We're going to read the entire chapter together. And just remember, this is now taking place about a month before Jesus is crucified. Somewhere in the month or two range before Jesus is crucified. John 11. Now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany. That's the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. That's foreshadowing what's going to come in chapter 12. It was that Mary whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness won't end in death. As Don Carson puts it, it won't end ultimately in death. 
Instead, it is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That statement is worth reflecting on because it can really only be understood if you believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one eternally existing in three persons. Glorifying the Son of God is not blasphemous. It is worshipful because he's one with God the Father. It's the only way you can make sense of verse 4. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Judea is the region where the city of Jerusalem is, and Lazarus' home is in Bethany, which is in the same region. It's actually just a little walk, like less than an hour walk over the Mount of Olives from downtown Jerusalem to Bethany. The disciples said to Jesus, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and you're going to go there again? Jesus answered, aren't there 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, meaning without the sun, without Jesus, he stumbles because the light's not in him. Now, Jesus there, to put it very simply, is just teaching that the most important thing in life is not avoiding death at all costs. They've said, no, no, don't go there. You're going to die. And Jesus is saying, basically, you've got to walk when the sun's up. You've got to follow Jesus. The ultimate goal of life is not avoiding death at all costs, but following Jesus no matter what the cost Verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going to wake him up. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he's going to get better. Jesus was speaking of his death, but they thought he was talking about the rest of sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I wasn't there so that you may believe but let's go to him. So Thomas, the one called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, I think he's speaking with skepticism and with profound irony, let's also go that we may die with him. And Thomas would. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to, Mary, to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Notice how Jesus wants Martha's understanding of the truth to be personal. She doesn't merely need to understand facts, like academically, like know that thing to be true. She needs to trust Jesus. And notice how the next two statements back his claim. He's just said, I'm the resurrection and the life. 
He says, he who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That means Jesus is the resurrection. It means that he's going to raise physically to life any follower of his who dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's a way of saying Jesus is the life. He is going to ensure that everyone who trusts in him never actually dies, but will experience life. That is life now, that is life as soon as they're absent from the body, and that is life as soon as their body is raised. They will never experience death. They will go from life to life. Jesus is the source of life. And he asks Martha very personally, so do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has promised to come into the world. When she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher's here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her. They supposed that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You notice the sisters say the exact same thing. But I agree with commentators who think that their senses are just a little bit different. For example, G. Campbell Morgan says that Martha's words were more confrontational, while Mary's words were a little bit more uh, respectful, grievous. Martha, basically with magnificent honesty, That's how Campbell Morgan puts it. She says, basically, why didn't you hurry when we sent for you? But Mary means, basically, I wish you had been here. Something like that. I think think they're right, pointing out what's going on in different, uh, complementary difference between Mary and Martha. Verse 33. Now when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Moved is a term that basically means indignant. He was righteously angry. And troubled means, I think more accurately, more specifically, he was disturbed. He comes into the scene, grief over his friend's death, And he is indignant, disturbed. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus deeply moved again, disturbed over the presence of sin and death in his creation. It's an awful thing. Jesus, disturbed again, comes to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Verse 39, Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, 
by this time, there's going to be an odor. He's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around me, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him, let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we going to do? For this man performs many signs. Notice that term. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. That means they will follow him to the death as a political leader, as a king. And they say, then the Romans are going to come and take away both our place and our nation. Notice They're driven, like many politicians, by selfish ambition. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, he said to them, you don't know anything at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation perish. He said this not of his own accord. But being the high priest that year, he actually prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not only for the nation, but also gather together into one people, the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Caiaphas has no clue what he's saying, but he's speaking prophetically. Oh, don't worry. Whole nation's not going to die. One man will. We're going to kill him, is what he's saying. But Caiaphas basically says, the whole nation's going to be saved if this one man dies. Oh, yes. He doesn't realize what he's saying. He's speaking with incredible double meaning. He has no idea that, in fact, not only the whole nation, but the whole world can be saved through this one man's substitutionary death. Wow. Wow. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but he went from there to the region near the wilderness, a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. This is going to be the Passover, the end of which Jesus is crucified. It was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus, saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. What an account. The history of the seventh of seven signs. And this one, in a sense, is climactic. Like I said, we've come to like one of the peaks in the range. But the most crucial thing we have to keep in mind as we read John 11 is that it's not ultimate. It's wonderful. 
but it is not ultimate. It's just the middle of the story. It's not the end of it. The way we describe that, the technical term for it, is it's penultimate. It's second best. It's almost there. A way of saying it in terms of the book, we're in John 11, not John 20. I want to explain three things that you have to keep in mind in order to get the main point of John 11. Okay? The first thing you've got to keep in mind is that Jesus' his resurrection of Lazarus was just a sign. It was pointing to Jesus. It was a billboard. So the resurrection of Lazarus is incredible in the deepest sense of the word. Incredible. But it's not the greatest thing. Jesus is the greatest thing. The sign is pointing to Jesus. Secondly, his resurrection of Lazarus is just a preview of the final resurrection. It's really a half miracle. <laughs> you say, wait, wait, wait. John 11 is a miracle. Come on. It is a miracle. But it's a half miracle. It's not ultimate. It's incomplete. I say that for two reasons. One is because Lazarus is going to die again. Secondly, it's because of this little detail that symbolizes something significant. When Lazarus comes out of the tomb, the burial linens are still covering him. That is unlike the way Jesus emerged from the tomb in John 20, when Jesus in his glorified body left the burial linens behind so as awesome as this miracle was, it was a half miracle. It was foreshadowing ultimate resurrection. Third, Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus got quickly overshadowed by Jesus' resurrection of himself. This is actually the third of four times that Jesus works a resurrection from the dead in the Gospels. John actually says at the end of his account that if he were to record all the miracles Jesus worked, not all the books in the world could contain them. Jesus presumably raised many people from the dead. The greatest evidence of his power over the grave is his power to take up his own life, his power to raise himself from the dead. So great and true as this miracle in John 11 is, it isn't ultimate. It's just a pointer. It's a preview. The resurrection of Lazarus is not something we should fixate on. It is teaching us, pointing us to fix our eyes on Jesus. That's the point of John 11. So now I'll state the main point. Point of John 11 is that you must commit your life to Jesus because he's the only human who can give life and raise the dead. He is the resurrection and the life. He's the only man, the only God-man who can communicate the life of God to rebel humans and raise them from the dead. You must commit your life to him because he alone is the resurrection and the life. He alone can give life. He alone can raise the dead. Now, I'm not going to fix on this terribly much but the most incredible thing about this is that the way Jesus gives life is by dying 
And the reason the religious leaders want him dead is because he is the life. They want to kill the life. And he gives life by allowing himself to be killed. Incredible beauty, glory in the wisdom of God and how he works this. I want to finish this message with two simple applications, okay? First is going to be to unbelievers, to non-Christians, and the second is going to be to Christians. How everyone in this room should respond to this story, okay? First is for non-Christians. Non-Christians need to believe Jesus. You need to commit your life to him. Jesus raised Lazarus so that you'd trust him with your life. The word believe appears nine times in the chapter. I'm going to point out three of them. At the heart of the miracle, verse 42, look back there. Jesus is praying and he says, Father, I thank you that you always hear me. And I say this so that those watching will believe that you sent me. He's doing the miracle so that people will believe him. According to verse 45, just a couple verses later, as soon as he raises Lazarus from the dead, many people did believe in him. They committed their lives to him. And according to verse 48, the religious leaders in Jerusalem wanted to kill him because they were afraid everyone would believe him. This reaction to Jesus is the point of the miracle. It is what is so hated about the the outflow of the miracle. People are believing Jesus. Further, if you just put there next to those words believe, maybe you circle them and just put in the margin, 20, 33, John 20, uh, 31, sorry, not 33, John 20, 31. John says, I'm writing everything in this account so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you'd have eternal life through the authority he has to give it. John says, I'm writing everything so that you'd believe. In other words, Jesus is doing this so that anyone who's not a follower of Jesus in here, anyone who's not committed your life to Jesus, would do it. Now, some of you, I wonder if you're maybe just a little bit more skeptical, and you say, I can't believe this because I don't think it's history. I'm inclined to think that this is legend, that maybe followers of Jesus in the next generation or maybe the next hundred years developed, they talked to each other a lot, stories built up, and then out came this story. It's legend. It's not fact. Many people have that view. And I'd ask you five questions if that's you. If you say, I can't believe it. It's not history, it's legend. I ask five questions. The first question is, have you considered the manuscripts? John is the oldest attested New Testament document. The famous manuscript, Papyrus number 52, is housed in a museum in Manchester, England. P52. They date it at 120 AD. Papyruses of excuse me, papyri, that's the plural, of John were circulating throughout the world within 30 years of it being written. You don't have opportunity 
for legends to grow up that quickly. Have you considered, secondly, the marks of authenticity? Like, for example, the way John portrays Mary and Martha. It's really interesting to note the personality differences. If you look at what the Sunday school class in here was studying under James's leadership in Luke 10, Mary and Martha, you will see that there's actually incredible harmony even though John and Luke were two different authors with two different backgrounds and writing in two different decades. Scholars call this undesigned coincidence. And there are dozens of them throughout the Gospels where writers complement one another powerfully without intending to. Have you considered, thirdly, the historic personal influence of John? Have you considered that the writings of Christians whom John discipled disseminated throughout the world within decades of his life? These are Christians who became pastors like Polycarp in Smyrna. He was martyred for his faith. Or Papias in Herapolis, it's near Colossae and Ignatius of Antioch. The list could go on of other early church fathers who commented that John was an incredible discipler of others. And within the next generation, there were pastors throughout the world who had been discipled by this John and and one who actually died for his faith. Have you considered what happened in the first generation of John's influence? Fourth, Have you considered the immediate international interest in the gospel accounts? Have you considered that the first harmony of all four gospels, that is the first record of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all being woven together into one account of the life of Christ, was written by an Assyrian man in the language of Syriac. His name was Tatian in 160 A.D., He's got all four Gospels in front of them and is weaving them into a single account. He was a Christian apologist from Assyria. Wow. And have you considered archaeology? The town of Bethany is known by Muslims as El Azariah. It's another version, an Arabic version of Lazarus, the place of Lazarus. And there is a tomb there in Bethany over which four structures through the centuries have been built. The earliest one was there at least in 330 A.D. Hmm. You compare that to significant places in the U.S. Places where maybe a president was shot in D.C. Places where Franklin stood in, in Philadelphia, places where a boat landed in Massachusetts. Can, can we go back three, four hundred years and say this is the exact place it happened? Yeah. Yeah. And in many cases, there are whole industries of tourism built up around it. This place is called by Muslims the place of Lazarus. It's five centuries after. There had already been, I think, two structures built over it by that point. 
So I just say there are strong reasons in history, in archaeology, in the text itself, and in how the text has been received through the years, through the centuries. There's strong reason for understanding John 11 as history and not as legend. Let me just go for the jugular. John 11 is written so that you'd commit your life to Jesus. So that you'd believe Jesus. To commit your life to Jesus is to first understand that he's the one who has the power to forgive sin, to raise the dead, and to fix everything that's broken in creation. And to believe Jesus doesn't just simply mean you you understand facts in your head, but that you commit your life to him. That you accept him, receive him as your savior. You bow before him as your God. It means that you submit to him as your Lord, as your authority. This is what it means to believe Jesus. And both the risk and the reward of this decision could not be greater. Jesus declares, I am the resurrection and the life. That means if you commit your life to Jesus, the resurrection and the life, you get eternal life. Your body gets to be raised from the dead and you will forever live reconciled to God. If you reject Jesus, you will experience death. You will experience dying after death, that is, living forever away from the presence of God under his judgment. As John 5 put it, we read it earlier in the scripture reading, you will be raised to condemnation. You can either be raised to life or raised to death. The risk, the reward could not be greater. Who do you say Jesus is? Really, right now, who is Jesus? Is he the resurrection and the life? We live in a generation that lacks commitment. Draw a line in the sand right now. Who do you say he is? Is he who he claimed to be? Did he raise Lazarus from the dead? There is solid foundation for you committing your life to Jesus, the one who has the power of life, the one who has the power to raise the dead. A second application is for Christians. Christians, keep believing Jesus. Keep recommitting your life to him. He raised Lazarus so that your trust in him would deepen through every trial. Think about who Jesus did this miracle for. He didn't just do it for the crowds of people who hadn't yet committed to him. He's doing this for people like Martha, who's saying, I know you're the Messiah. She knows who he is, and he's doing it for her. He's doing it for his disciples, many of whom have already committed themselves to him. They know he is God's anointed one sent into the earth, the Christ, the king who will rule forever. They know it. Why is he doing it for them? It's because their faith needs to deepen and deepen and deepen, and their recommitment, their, their commitment needs to go on from commitment to recommitment to recommitment. This is why Jesus does it for those who are believing him. He wants their faith to deepen. See, faith 
conviction, commitment to Jesus is not just the starting point of the Christian life. It is all of the Christian life. Commitment to Jesus, faith in Jesus, following Jesus through thick and thin, it is life. And this passage reveals some really precious things that we in here who have believed in Jesus maybe for a year or maybe through 50 years, we need to hear and we need to be encouraged by. Because when we are in the middle of trials right now, while we're walking by faith and not by sight, when we're in the middle of trials, following Jesus is hard. Just like it was for Mary and Martha. I wonder, are you in here this morning, and maybe even in the last week or two, you've been crying in prayer saying, God, where are you? Why weren't you here when I needed you? You need this passage. You need it. You need the truth that this passage gives when you're overwhelmed with a believer's unbelief. Those truths I can summarize like this. When when Jesus waits to answer, when he seems absent, you need to remember that he knows you. It's where the passage begins, doesn't it? That Jesus knows Lazarus is sick. He knows Lazarus is sick even before the messenger comes from Mary and Martha to tell him. He knows. And he knew Lazarus died without anyone telling him. Wow. That's incredible. Jesus knows. He knows the details. So, Christian, when you're really wrestling with God, saying, why didn't you answer Why didn't you answer on my timetable? You must remember, it's not because he's oblivious. It's not like you're going to one day get into Jesus' presence and he's going to say, I didn't know what you were going through. I say that to people a lot. I didn't know. I didn't understand. I had no idea. That's not Jesus. When he waits to answer, he knows fully well your situation. According to Psalm 139, he knows every time you stand up and sit down. He's numbered every hair on your head. That's Luke 12. Matthew 6, he knows every one of your needs before you ever ask him. The point of prayer is not informing. He knows. He knows all about your trials. And when he doesn't respond on your timetable, it's intentional. Swallow hard. It's intentional. It's not that he's unaware. It's he's doing something that you might not understand. The second reality that you've got to keep in mind, believer, if your faith is going to deepen, is that Jesus loves you. I think this is probably the most interesting thing about the passage. It's interesting that Jesus delayed to come to Lazarus because he loved Lazarus. And because he loved Mary and Martha. He stayed where he was two days longer and let the situation get worse because he loved them. You've got to apply it. I've got to apply it. And this is not easy to apply. When Jesus deepens our suffering, when he extends our trials to a duration 
that seems unbearable. He's doing it because he loves us. Can you make sense of that love? It's baffling, but Jesus knew what was best for these people. He knew it was best for his loved ones. And what was best for them was to deepen their faith in him and make it so strong that it would endure anything. So that the gospel would advance throughout the world, even to places as remote as Madison, Ohio, 2,000 years after the fact. He was making their faith strong and making their witness brilliant so that his glory would advance throughout the world so that we could understand the glory of God and have the opportunity of living forever in the kingdom as a complement to his glory. Wow. He loves us. Jesus grieves with us. He grieves with you. Notice that when he sees Lazarus' tomb, when he sees Martha, frantic, and Mary weeping at his feet, he doesn't just stand there. He's not cold. It says he's deeply moved. He's greatly troubled. He wept. He's not simply compassionate. He's also indignant over the wrongs we suffer, including the loss we suffer. As we suffer, Jesus is troubled and grieved. So it's really critical that you do not think of Jesus right now when you're lifting your grieved circumstances to him, your, the, the circumstances that are pressing down on you, making you feel like you're going to die because you can't remember to breathe. Some of you are there. You're so stressed out. You say it's adding gray hairs, concerned about a stroke. You've got to remember that as you're praying and praying and praying and praying and praying, Jesus isn't standing up somewhere, aloof, back turned. He's indignant. He's going to fix it. He can't wait to fix it. He's waiting on the perfect timing of his father. And you've got to believe that however long he waits, fourthly, it is going to result in greater glory. Jesus will be more glorified for delaying. When Jesus said, Lazarus, come out, every onlooker witnessed the glory of God in a more magnificent way than if Jesus had come a few days earlier and healed him while he was sick. Let me put it like this. Jesus let the situation get darker so his glory would eventually shine more brightly. He let the situation get darker so that eventually his glory would shine more brightly. And for the rest of their lives, Martha and Mary and Lazarus would tell people that Jesus was awesome, that his timing was perfect, that the way he controlled this situation was glorious. 
you've got to believe that you're going to do the same thing if you're a follower of Jesus. There's coming a day when you're going to brag about your Savior's timing, the timing you struggle to trust right now. I've told you before that my favorite games to watch and rewatch and rewatch are not the blowouts, they're the comebacks. Like the one that's called The Miracle in the New Meadowlands. It's my team, the Philadelphia Eagles, crushing one of our arch rivals, the New York Giants. December 19th, 2010, I watch it and rewatch it and rewatch it. It's the most watched football game in my home. I will never forget waking up both of my daughters that Sunday afternoon because I was shouting at the top of my lungs in the upstairs of my house. Hannah's like, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. I woke them up. They were down with 21 minutes to go. No, they were down by 21 points with eight minutes to go in the fourth quarter. And they came back to win by seven. Incredible. That's the kind of game I love watching. We are wired to love history like that. Because that's history. That's human history. God is magnifying his mighty grace by letting death like a blanket, cover his creation, and then conquering death and swallowing it up forever. That's history. He's letting it get bad so he can show the glory that he has to conquer all that's bad. It's history. Jesus allows tears sorrow, grief to enter his creation so that he can then count every tear and dry every tear. It's a come from behind victory. It's the, oh no, the bad guys are going to win. No, they're not. It is a comeback. It's not a blowout. It's a comeback, a comeback, a comeback. God is going to show the power of his glorious grace over every evil through Jesus. And there's coming a time when you are going to say, with all of your trials behind you, Psalm 103.3, Bless the Lord, O my soul, everything within me. Let's praise his holy name because he's healed all our diseases. Right now, we're still dealing with sickness, disease, and death. There's coming a day when we're going to say, No, you've healed me from all of it. You've healed me from all of it. And do not, believer, do not judge the Lord until that day. Don't turn on the Lord. Simply because the sorrow feels too great right now. Every time he does not immediately answer your prayer exactly when and how you think he should, Trust that he's going to end your circumstance in the same way he ended it for Mary and Martha. It's going to be a way that glorifies him and thrills you forever. You've got to trust that he is going to come from behind, as it were, 
and he's going to turn your grief into jumping up and down joy and you're going to be rewatching it and retelling it and rehearsing it forever. Let's pray.